Welcome back for season three of Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about Mad Men, the TV series that aired on AMC for seven seasons between 2007 and 2015. The show is set in an advertising agency in the 1960s and follows both the professional and personal lives of the characters, hijinks ensue. At Rotten Tomatoes, the average season tomato meter is 94%, and the critics' consensus for season one reads, oozing evocative early 1960s ambiance, Mad Men is a sly, subversive look at the American workplace that radiates class, wit, and an undercurrent of disaffection. Of course, here on Below the Line, we don't care what the critics thought. My guest today will tell us more about what happened behind the scenes. First, Adam Ben Frank, you started as the second assistant director in season one, Become one of the first ADs in season three. That's correct. Well, Adam, you and I did some work together back in the days on West Wing. You've clearly stayed busy since then. What are you working on now? Uh, now I'm the co-producer UPM on Goliath season four. Welcome to the show, Adam. Glad you could join us. Thanks. Next, we're joined by Eric Carpenter, who was a PA on season two, came back to the show as the second second AD in season five, was promoted to the key second AD in season seven. Eric, welcome. Thanks for having me. Eric, that's the definition of climbing the ladder. What was that like for you going back and forth with the show? Uh, it, was, it was exciting. And when I left as a PA, I said I was not going to miss my opportunity to AD on the show. And I was trying to get all my days and time so that I could come back and be an AD before the show went off the air. <laughs> both glad you had the chance to do that and glad that you're going to tell, it, tell us about it here. Uh, finally, in our fourth chair today is Lana Horachowski, who started with the makeup team in season one. Lana, then you left for season two, but returned as the department head in season three, as I understand it. Welcome. Thank you. So, Lana, what are you working on now? Uh, right now, I'm doing Penny Dreadful, the uh, City of Angels, the new, the new, like, I guess, the new chapter of Penny Dreadful. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. In fact, I think I know some other crew working on that. And oh, maybe really? you guys will, yeah, maybe you guys will come back when it airs and we'll talk about it, uh, talk about it some more. All right. But let's turn our attention back to Mad Men. First, for some context, the show is set in New York City and the pilot was filmed there, but regular filming took place in LA and I don't think any of you worked on the pilot, but I'm curious to find out how much of the crew carried over. I think there was about six people. Matt Weiner, Scott Hornbacher, the line producer, uh, Marcy Patterson, um, Jen Getzinger, who was the script coordinator, a script supervisor rather, and she came over, and Phil Abraham, who DP'd the first six episodes, including the pilot, and then started directing, and Alan Taylor, who directed the pilot, directed uh, first season as well. Oh, I see. And when you mentioned uh, Matt Weiner, Matt Weiner, for those who don't know, is the creator and executive producer of the show. We'll be talking more about him as we go. But let's uh, tell me more about what the filming was like in, in L.A. Is it correct that you guys were at L.A. Center Studios? Mm-hmm. So, Eric, I mean, you guys must have taken that place over. A couple of stages, like what sort of footprint did you guys have? We had four of the stages, right? I think at first we had three. Yeah. And, and in the last season, we had, oh, no, after, after they moved offices, then we got that stage six, right? That right. last one. And that there was that half a stage down on the uh, oh, stage right. seven or whatever. We all hated shooting in. <laughs> it was literally like a closet, and uh, we set the sprinklers off one time. <laughs> Tell mm -hmm. us more about that. What do you What do you mean you set the sprinklers off while filming? That 
that was sort of a, a swing stage. So season one, one entire stage was the office. And then there were some other offices. The way we would do that is put up flats against the offices we already had on the main set and, and redress the office. So it would look like we were on a different floor. And on another set was the Draper home and uh, the, you know, the bedrooms because they were on the second floor. So they had to be built separately. And then we had a third swing set stage. And, and then season two, we started getting a lot bigger. And then we took over this, they called it stage seven, which they rented to commercials because it was really small and it did not have high ceilings. So like the hospital that Peggy was in when she gave birth was in there. Um, a couple of like the flashback sets. The uh, wasn't there. Wasn't the uh, kitchen too in there? Was that the first time that it was um, when she got remarried? And mm, the kitchen oh, set yeah. wasn't that in there to start? Yeah, too? that was. And yeah, then they moved it up three. to stage the the third stage we got up top when we got expanded. I think when we got the fourth stage. Yeah. But tell me again, so saying off the sprinklers, just the lights were too hot or you yeah, literally that, set something on fire? The ceil no, the ceilings were too low. So the heat generated from the lights uh, set off the sprinklers. <laughs> that must have made for a fun, fun, fun note on the production report. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and also to scramble to see what we're going to do next. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about when you guys were shooting exteriors? I, I don't recall there being tons of exteriors, but... I shot them around LA to look like New York or out in the neighborhoods for some of the, like the Draper home. Where did that get done? The Draper home was in Pasadena uh, until they got divorced and sold that home. We used LA center as the exterior of Sterling Cooper um, because it was a period building. I think it was built in 59. And we, whenever we did exteriors, we were very controlled about them because we didn't have hundreds of cars and, hundreds of extras because it was essentially like a low budget show the first couple of seasons. It didn't really get popular until season three. And uh, you know, that's when above the line became a little heavy and they, they gave us a little bit more money, but not much. Well, I want to talk more about that as well, but let's talk, let's dive a little deeper on the challenges of filming a period piece with a limited budget. Start where you like. Uh, Lana, why don't you tell us a little about just the hair and makeup of the 1960s and trying to get that right. We tried to, as much as we could, can't, as much as we could, use like products that were around back then, just because, you know, there there were some like shades of like Revlon or like Estee, like lines that had been around still had like colors that had been, you know, used back then. So once the show got more popular, like they were like totally willing to just give it, you know, give us anything. But at first, it was just like trying to use like old fashioned makeup, like. You know, you can buy like inexpensive makeup at the makeup stores that's been around forever, like, you know, old, like just like makeup artist brand, like not no name brands, but they had like, you know, colors that have been around since like the 20s. So then we just like find old makeup ads was really like the, the best research for me because Matt wanted us to stay away from people looking too Hollywood or too like, you know, because it's like all the research you have, it's either black and white or, you, you know, it's been colored, you know, colored or, you know, like it's just what you see in movies, which is all, you know, professionally done. So in order to keep them sort of looking like regular people, um, I just, I, I guess like we just, we really looked at like the makeup ads at the, t like at the time, 
but maybe like a year ahead. So it's like if, if we were like in 1960, I would look at like 58, you know, makeup ads and, you know, figure like these are what people would be buying, the colors that were available. That's what people would be buying at the time. And so kind of that's what we used as a reference. And then just really like, you know, I mean, it was all broken down by character. Like we, Peggy was always, you know, pretty plain until all of a sudden she was like trying hard and then she would be like, maybe she would go by like the one period color and she would put it on. But the challenges, you know, at the beginning were, were trying to find like foundation that was like more matte and pancake because everybody, nobody now is wearing that. So we just kind of had to stick with old fashioned products you know, to make it look authentic, as, as authentic as possible. Was it expensive to find older products? You said in later well, seasons really, they were I giving mean, it to really, you. Yeah, but. Really, in later seasons they were giving it. Plus, like, you know, I, I, again, as the show gained popularity, like the, like the reds and the, and the hot pinks and the corals sort of made a comeback, maybe influenced by the show, I don't know. But, like, those colors weren't super popular when we started. At, like, the mattes, everything was pretty glossy and shiny, and that wasn't being done then. So, like, once the show gained me, like – in trend wise, we were starting to get more mats and you know those sort of pigments, so they were a lot easier to find. But no, actually, when you're when you're using like no name products, they're actually like less expensive than like the Chanel Red or the you know the, the name brands. But you know, like as we again as the show got more popular and we got fancier, we got more money and we got a little more access to a little the more access to, to things. Yeah, and then view. like people were wanting to do like a Mad Men line and a this, so then we were like. Then we were rolling in product. (laughs) (laughs) Adam, Eric, what about just being on set between sets and props? And again, these things are common. You mentioned like having a limited number of cars. If you are shooting exteriors, these are all big budget items, right? To make it look like it's not just a specific thing, but frankly, part of the background. Yeah. This is the first place when I at work where I learned about blocking vehicles. We'd always bring in a giant period bus to block off the majority of the street. You could see in the background, which would, limit what you could see but we had a core group of car owners that we would call and bring in and you'd just give them a period shirt and they'd dress from the waist up and they'd be your driving cars on the street whenever you needed them and it was pretty much the same people every time yeah if you really look inside the cars you can see they're all like 50 plus (laughs) car collectors we're begging, it, begging them to shave, begging them to please shave because you yeah. can't have that silhouette of a like all that facial hair and the long hair. Because the question is, then would come and drive their own cars, and so but they're obviously going to be the ones that drive it, but they also have to look period themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Some some of them looked really good, and those were the ones we would put closer. Um, some of them were just used to be parked and, and they could spend the day, they could spend the day at craft service then if they needed to. Yeah. So. I was just going to say they would bring their little chairs and be camp, like be set up like the whole group of them. Cause we'd usually have 10 to 15 at the most. It was like its own little bleacher section, like the hair and makeup department on our show, because not only did all the principals have to go through hair, and makeup and costumes, but so did all the extras. So Early on in prep, I remember when they first started, they did not have a separate, I'll call it base camp for background. They were just going to do it like every other show. And then they, they quickly realized we wow. need a wardrobe trailer for background. We need a hair and makeup trailer for background. And they needed basically their own team. So there were three hair and makeup for principals and cast. And then there was three hair and makeups for background. Um, and when they all sat together on the stage, the producer would always as we get towards the end of the day would say, 
any way we can wrap some of the bleacher section. <laughs> <laughs> Lana, when you said you started first season as part of the team, were you with the principals or were you with that? Yeah, I was team? with the, no, I was with the principals. The first season I was there, I did Christina Hendricks and John Slattery. And uh, honestly, pretty much everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> as, as it rolls through. Um, and, this, you know, props on the show, since you brought that up, that was always our first meeting in prep because everything had to be made. That's the thing about that show. Prep was very important because everything had to be made. Every actor had to get their, every male actor had to have their hair cut, including some females. We, we had to pick them because certain blondes, all that color in some, some people's hair streaks and all of that, that didn't exist. So if, if an, extensions, if a, extensions yeah. if a background had that, we had to not cast them or they had to have, you know, do their hair properly in order to work on our show uh, at their own expense. And some people did. So we would always have the prop meeting first to give them a lead time to build all that stuff. There was no, let's rush call in an extra because we're down a person. We couldn't do that because that person that was picked was already had their hair cut, already fit into a costume. And the same thing with props. There was no like, all right, let's give this guy a newspaper. Two reasons. One, it had to be period. And two, every script had a date to it. This script takes place January 3rd, 1960 to uh, January 12th, you know, and all the papers on the set, all the magazines on the set and people's homes, they had to be correct in that time period. Matt would check. He yeah. did check. <laughs> well, and I've read that uh, Matt had, say, a very precise eye for what he wanted on set, from props to newspapers to, as you mentioned, the makeup. Talk some about that kind of involvement. Like what sort of detail was the executive producer bringing to each and every, every prop, basically? Well, there was not ever one actor that went on, that walked onto set to shoot that did not go through a hair and makeup test. So we were constantly like, even if they had one line, even if it was like a featured background that we were going to like really see, we, they would come in, we would fully do them, put them in costume and we either we would put them on, we would take pictures or we would take them up to Matt's office and, you know, and we would do it until we got it right. Cause it never, you know, which actually it seems like a lot more work, but at the end of the day, it was like so great. Cause by the time they would come in to get ready, it's like, we already knew what we were doing. There was already a picture ready to go. Anybody could have done them and it was already approved. And it, it really does make the process a lot faster when you have that many people to, to get ready. Yeah. That goes to the prep of it. You know, once the train left the station, there wasn't, you know, there was a little bit of prep to do as Eric could attest and I, cause we were both seconds with fitting people like you, you couldn't fit everybody in prep you basically did the first few days and then that process continued that's why we had rotating keys and hair makeups for the principals you tried to get as many as you could that came to the read-through which was everybody came to the read-through but you would do as many as the hair and makeup people could and then sometimes they would come in the day or two before they worked you know that we the show had really had a rhythm with prep that i honestly fight to do on other shows. Unlike other shows, we always had our scripts day one. And if we didn't have a script, we had as much as he could have write. And then in our concept meeting, he would tell us what each scene was going to be. And we'd have a concept meeting draft. And then three or four days into prep, we'd have our tone meeting. And then after that, we'd have the tone meeting draft. And then after we found locations and started casting people, he'd release a pre-production draft maybe two days after that. And then 
the day of the last day of prep was always the read through the production meeting in the morning and the read through at lunch. And right, right before that last day, we'd get our white copy. And after the read through, Matt would take the writers upstairs with the director. They'd go through the script again. And then we would had a, a blue version come out. Very rarely did we have like a pink or a yellow or green. I don't, it was never like the colored scripts you see on every other show. They would beat the outlines down because Matt would say, the key to a good script is a great outline. I remember him saying that. And they would beat it down. There'd be like 12, 13, 14, 15 versions of an outline. And then by the time they got to the script and after prep, it pretty much hold. It held rather. And when you talk about the colored pages, obviously we get them as the new pages, each, each set gets a new color on the rainbow. You can end up with some uh, particularly colorful uh, scripts that people are carrying around, but keeping it tight to just third version, that, that is pretty impressive. Adam, something else you mentioned about rotating keys. Um, could you and or Eric say a little bit more about that? Because what's different on this show than from others? Well, I think it's like Adam said, it's the background and the cast take up a lot of time with getting pictures. We picture picked a lot of the extras, the more so than I think I've done on any other job. And we interviewed a lot of the extras as well. Because if you have, you know, someone that's interacting with one of the principals in a, in a group setting, even a waiter that has to hit a cue and come in and drop off a drink. I mean, it's, you want to bring these people in to make sure that they're not going to stumble over their feet and, uh, you know, drop a drink on the table and screw up a take or something like that. And just in general, be able to interact and not let the moment be too big. So a lot of interviewing, a lot of picking background off of pictures, hair makeup tests, as Lana said, and the nature of the prep with the scouting as well. I mean, an art department having to keep, because it's the period, the nature of the period show and how, how accurate we were historically and how Matt was involved and wanted it to be as perfect as it could be. If any little thing changed, you had to talk to every department, let them know on scouts, you had to know which way you're looking. You can only look this way, which way are we dressing the set? It, it's just the work is, it's a lot bigger and the scripts were meaty. So aside from a show, you know, where you're shooting a five day episode and you have four days on stage and two days of background, we were, you know, we were, what were we? We were like eight days, I think with a double up day. Season one, we were season one, two, and three. We were seven days with a double up. Seven with a double up, yeah. And then season. Double, sorry, let me yeah. a double up. Meaning you're trying to get basically a half day for two different episodes. Was that the no, idea, or what do you mean? Day day eight of episode one, we would start day one of episode two. So we'd have two crews working, one to finish. Basically, a, a second crew was brought in to finish day eight of episode one. And the DP and the regular crew started day one with episode two on that same day. Everybody except us, because we always had to be on one and we would always have to be on both. Because they would the hair, bring in, hair and makeup has to stick with the folks no matter what set they're on. Right. They would bring in more people to help cover the sets so that they, the main people that worked every day would basically be in the paint shop or what I call, that's what I call the makeup trailer to get all the actors ready <laughs> and they would have people that would stay on set to maintain them 
while they got everyone ready for two episodes of television. And so Those are the most fun days. <laughs> oh, yeah, and it sounds like a lot so of fun. Here's what happened on season four. I was the first AD, and, you know, Matt was the master at writing, like, these really dense scenes that were really three scenes in one. And because, you know, you're at a party and it's three separate conversations happening, you have to cover each of these people talking as if it was just a scene. And... One day we got through two scenes out of the five we had to do, and there was no way we were going to finish. And I have this picture of Nina and I sitting together with our computers and Scott behind us, trying to figure out how we're going to do this. And, and we ended up that season going to eight dedicated days per episode, because on the seventh day, doing a double up, you can't schedule the way you would. You have to schedule to make certain, to not be on a certain stage or not, and also to not be on location. We both had to be on the, at LA Center. So it sort of locks your schedule in a little bit. And what we realized, if we can free it up and just schedule eight days the way we need to, it became more efficient. And so seasons four and five turned into eight dedicated days. Season six, we started doing the ninth double up day when needed. And then season seven, we became nine days with a double up 10th when needed because wow, so the shows got so dense and season seven, you know, Don Draper took a road trip. We had to be in a lot of different locations. We couldn't do that with our, you know, with the amount of scenes we had to shoot per episode. They were very meaty scripts. You know, I'd be on page 22 and there was already 35 scenes. You know, I wanted, I wanted, I want us to dive more particularly into the final season, not just about what was involved in the logistics, but how all of that came together. But to going back to the general point, so from the beginning, they knew the show was going to be complicated. While a show will normally have two first ADs, one prepping while one shoots, from the beginning, they had you guys had two key seconds as well. For yes. The, so well, prep. when when because I got I was the second second hired. When they started, they were going to do this with one key, and then they realized in prep very early on. They, they needed two keys. They needed the second base cam for the background. They, they realized that. And that's when Nina Jack gave me a call and I was hired as the key. I see. It's really, it's really amazing they figured that out. I mean, that could have started season one off on such a sour note had they not realized, especially with the trailer for the background, the makeup trailer and costumes and having another key. Like that was, that was a, a really good critical decision made early on, I think, that help production immensely and part of that part of me. that was scott because he was from new york and in new york nine out of ten shows have rotating keys and he figured that we need to do this new york way not la way when i first came out here from new york and i was the only key on west wing i was like this is crazy <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not the cheap way <laughs> right <laughs> And, well, is that, and do you think there's the day overlap? I don't see that, to your point, it's much more complicated to do the logistics. Of course, you shrink the overall schedule by a day an episode, but you're still spending a ton of money to bring in new folks and stuff. I mean, that, but would you think that's a budget consideration as well to do that with yeah. the overlapping days? It's half the cost of a regular day because you're sharing equipment, you're sharing crew, and you're mm -hmm. sharing the rented stage that's already paid for by the other episode. Now, in general, going, as you mentioned, the seasons grow. You are getting more money. The show's doing well. You're, it's, uh, it's 
to uh, Lana, to your point earlier, they're actually making and releasing the makeup that you want to use and giving it to the show. Um, but at the same time, you also alluded to the fact the episodes are getting more and more complicated. Is Was that the sense? Like, what is it getting easier or harder on balance as you go season to season? If you watch season one and season one, it was mostly inside the office at Sterling Cooper. Season two, we started going a little bit more into the Draper home and to other characters' homes. And then season three, where, you know, that's the season everything happened. It got really big. That's when we real, like, the, he really opened up the world, going to all of these characters' lives and Roger's wedding and the British coming and the lawnmower episode. Like, every episode that had a party and multiple actors all at once, I sort of fell on me. <laughs> Nina got the blackface episode. That was it. Every other party fell on me and it continued. You remember, Eric, like when you were my second, we got all of these. Zooby, zooby, zoo. Yeah, zooby, zooby, zoo. Hawaii. It, it was, yeah, Hawaii. That was great. You know, I want to talk, I want to talk more about Hawaii because season six premiere opens up with Hawaii. That's a pretty big undertaking. There's always quite a, a little sense of boondoggle when a cast goes to Hawaii at some later episode in, this, in a series. I'm curious about how this came together for Mad Men. Adam? Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I, Eric, I, I, I heard I, it was your idea, the whole thing, that you pitched it. So yeah. No, <laughs> honestly, what I heard was Matt went on vacation there a couple seasons before, and he stayed at the really one of the only period hotels left there, the pink one, the one we shot at. And he liked it, and, and it, he wrote it into an episode. That's And... It was a fight with the studio to actually go. They wanted us to fake it. And we didn't fake anything. We didn't, our motto on that show was we either do it right or we don't do it at all. And we knew our limitations. That's why we would do things so correctly. We wouldn't try to see all the way down the block. We would do what we could do really well. Like when Don walking out of the New York Athletic Club, it was like very limited shot, but you had cars going by and they were literally doing rounders to make it look like traffic. And we had our extras in front. And when we did our coverage, we shot into buildings. So it felt real and natural. We just, we knew our limitations and that's why we can be very efficient. We would go on scouts and we would do DGA theater and we would sit the people where the scenes were, where, the, where they were scripted. Cause the script was called the instructions. That was coined by Phil Abraham because they were, it was so, clearly specified what we see you know what you start on who speaks they light up during this they take a sip during that it was everything was scripted where they sat down where they stood up and so we could actually photograph ourselves on scouts and show the angles matt would approve them and then if we only saw three quarters of the room when you show up on the day that's all that was dressed we didn't just dress a 360 set and in case we want to do something else when we got there, everything was very precisely planned so that everything went onto the screen, every dollar. Going back to Hawaii, Adam called me. For the, that was season six, right? Yeah. He called me at the beginning before we started. He said, okay, so we'd love to have you back. Come back and be the second second again. I said, okay, great. He goes, we're going to Hawaii for the first two episodes, a combination of you know, filming for the first two episodes or the first episode but I don't think you can come. So you're going to start, you know, a couple weeks late. And I was like, Oh no, that's everyone's going to Hawaii. Yeah. We're going to hire a local second, second out there. And I, 
I was so bumming. And then finally they decided to bring me and they actually sent me out early and I got to do all the background fittings. And, That's uh, why they got you to go because it was very secretive, the show, but we also kept it everything in the family. We brought the entire crew out there with yeah. the exception of the lower Teamsters and the grips and electrics below the best boy because they were rigging the stages on the set because we started in Hawaii that season. Everyone else on the crew came, including PAs. Yeah. Because they just wanted A, for it to be secret, and B, we didn't, Matt didn't trust anybody else. He trusted us. And since basically by season six, 90% of the crew is still the same. And Eric, you know, the way to, to get you was like, okay, well, who's going to do all these fittings? You know, we're going to hire some local person that doesn't know us. And, and that's how Eric got to go out for two weeks before and use it as a vacation as well. <laughs> a working vacation, yeah. admittedly. Much as the show is selling uh, Don Draper's visit to Hawaii as well, right? That's part of his, his scripted. He's out there to actually visit the he hotel was there. for a marketing campaign, right? Yeah. Yeah, he was there. Everything that looks like it was in Hawaii, we were there. The luau, the beach. And we would have to, you know, we brought all these extras and we controlled as much as we could. And anything that was really deep and blurry, we just let go. You know, it's just the way we did things. It was... You know, that, that's, that was what was so great about that show. It was hard. It was challenging. But we thought about it. We talked about it ad nauseum and executed really well, like a fine meal. Yeah, I mean, we definitely, there was like a definite shorthand with our crew and, and like the producers. And I honestly, and even the cast. And I honestly think that's why like so much, so many of us are still friends and like so close still. And because I think we work together literally in a way where it was like, we just had to learn a way to communicate to get these things done. And like it, you know, it, it just. 14 was the new 12 on that show. That was our saying. <laughs> we worked 14 hours every day. So we were with each other more than we were with our families. And it was just because of the amount of work we did. And we did everything correctly, even if it took us a long time. And that's why that show looks the way it does. If you look on the sets, even those letters that were on the secretary's desk, all the stamps were canceled. Because if Matt went there and saw something, they would, you would get called out. So everyone on the crew played at their A level. Everyone played at, with their A game. And so no other department wanted to upset Matt. Not, it wasn't a competition. We all helped each other out. It just was a great assemblance of a bunch of people that wanted to help Matt execute his vision. No one had their own agenda. No one was trying to make themselves seem more important than they were. He really assembled everyone that really our goal was to make a great episode of television. We were all proud of what we were doing. I think, I, I really think he made each and every one of us, like from the top, like from department heads to cast to everyone, like he just made us all so much better at our job. I agree uh, with that. We've all gone on to do other shows and it's like, you know, when we all get together and talk. We're like, oh, and then I pitch it. We should do it this way. And they're like, oh, we don't need to worry about that. They're never going to see. Nobody's going to know. Like, we're always <laughs> thinking about props and we're all thinking about each other's departments because that's how we learn. Even when we schedule the show, when I'd have my hair and makeup meeting, I would get, we would have, you know, the Don Draper beard schedule because I would know like at what time of day, if it's six o'clock in the story, he was so precise with, what hour every scene took place, what day, so that I would know at six o'clock, he has to have five o'clock shadow. 
and it had to be scheduled in a way that allowed makeup to do it. So that would be the first thing she'd look at it and look at it for John Ham's beard. <laughs> wow. Ridiculous. But that's an example of us thinking about other people. You should do anyway as well, not just make up an art department. You schedule the sets that have to be built towards the end of the schedule, et cetera. And if you can't, you give them a warning. This is going to play first up. How do, what does that do to you? Along those lines, when something changes or with communicating with people, Adam ingrained in my head when I started as the second second and then key about letting the art department know when anything changed as well. So it was something, you know, on a non-period show, you change something last minute. It's, it's not as big a deal as, you know, art department needs to know, get them in. Oh, we're not going to that stage right away or we're an hour early. Get them over there so they can get ready. So definitely watching each other's backs. And it's kind of ruined working on any other show for me since being on Mad Men because, I mean, I, I came up and it was one of my first shows in L.A. as an AD. And, and you go off to other shows and it, you don't have that person at the top like Matt who's pulling absolute best out of every crew member. Uh, it's not like that on every show, unfortunately. So I know that the music that went with the episodes was also a big part of the show. Was a lot of that done in post or did that also affect what was happening on set? All, all the music was done in post. We had our tone meetings. And another thing a lot of shows don't do, in our tone meeting, it was the director, the writer of the episode, the first AD, the post producer, the editor, and David Carbonero, who was the music supervisor and actually wrote most of the music. Also our producer, Scott Hornbacher. And so the music was a big part. I know it didn't really happen on set. It was all in post, but in our tone meetings, Matt would talk about that. And that's why David was there. And they would talk about certain songs and how much we can get it for. Like we had actually had the Rolling Stones on an episode. That was probably like a 40 minute conversation. The one part where it did play was in the Zuby Zuby Zoo episode, which actually ended up getting released on iTunes and became very popular. David had a band and pre-recorded it with Jessica. And we found musicians that play the four instruments that we had there, brought them in, picked between multiple people and got to know them to trust that they can do this because you can't rehearse with them before. If you do that, you have to pay them as an AFM musician. So the way around that is you bring them in on the day a little bit early and they sit in a corner all together with our music supervisor and they rehearse and practice. And they did such a great job. If you really watch that episode, it really looks like they're playing those instruments. And we did something we never did on this show and gave them an extra money because we were pretty impressed by the results and, and a little bit surprised. I'm, I'm actually surprised it came off so well. I, I just remember everybody was really happy after that was, after we finished shooting that scene and how well it went and how efficient it was. And the shooting time is all the money saved there. It was. I don't think it was a big issue to throw a couple extra hundred bucks at these actors for doing such a great job. For our show, it was because everything was very tight, but they did such a great job. And I, the other thing I remember from that scene is Robert Morris ate about eight slices of cake. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Jessica was pretty nervous going into that. I, I think there was some buildup for her leading into it from the moment she read it in the script to the day we actually shot it. Uh, but she killed it naturally. She did. And she looked amazing, hair makeup wise, and costume. 
it was a good it was a good show it was a good episode and again another party scene where there was little side couplet conversations going on throughout the scene while that song was being played <laughs> it took us four days to shoot all the party scenes in that in that apartment well no, it sounds like it could be very stressful it sounds like it was hard work but Adam, you alluded earlier that people stayed, that most of the crew stayed through from season to season, stuck around for more of the same. Yeah, there were some departments that had a changeover for the better. Every change was for the better. Um, nobody really left on their own. Some people left on their own because they're just like, I can't deal with, the, you know, anyone who said who cares, no one's going to care, eventually got weeded out either by themselves or by Matt or Scott, because everybody cared. He cared. That's all that mattered, you know? And there was, there's a better way to, to get your point across, by, except to say no one's going to care about this. Because Matt cared. And he, the greatest thing about that, too, is in the concept meetings, our meetings were longer than most shows. Our concept meeting was no, never any less than two hours. Our production meetings were never any less than, I don't know, three hours. <laughs> um, because that would be a place where, we called it the prop production meeting instead of the production meeting because the prop department, our prop master would lay out all the props on a, on a table. And as we were going through the scenes, Matt would look at them all. And you know, to say that Matt had ADD is being kind. Um, he was very entertaining and he was always up and looking at stuff. And, you know, that meeting was basically our last chance with Matt for any questions before the train left the station. That also with the props, I mean, that, that just the prop duction meeting, although it was long and wasn't as important for every crew member as it was for the prop department, it just shows <laughs> you too. I mean, it was just, that's the level of dedication and the preciseness that, that department needed to make sure everything was perfect. Obviously props had to work really hard with that kind of detail straight through any other departments that you think an unusual shout out to, as far as the, what was called of them. Well, costumes, obviously costumes, like. Yeah. Finding all the, just finding all the clothes for everybody. Plus Janie like designed most of the cast clothes, which were just amazing. But also, she did it in a way that was also very production friendly. The background, if you really watch the episodes now, if a show had four script days, the background for the office would have two changes, day one and day three, day two and day four were the same. She kept it simple, but she had such a great palette for everything that when you're watching it, you don't, know, you don't really notice that. And that was all Janie um, Bryant, who was the, was the costume designer. And her team was just amazing too. You know, and there were certain costumes that some of these actresses had to literally be sewn into and couldn't do that until we were ready to shoot and they couldn't sit down until we were done filming. <laughs> do you, special high chairs? Like what do you do? You have a couple of production assistants just to lean on? Like how do you accommodate something like that they, on these 14 do, hour days? They used a high director's chair and they would literally lean on it. And that would be their sitting. And they would everyone would take the heels off. As soon as you'd say, all right, check the gate, heels off. Well, tell me more about the cast in general. What was it like working with this crew of folks throughout these seasons, basically? People are there 
for a very long time. Some folks left after a couple of seasons, and obviously some new folks came in, but it's a pretty solid core group and mm-hmm. definitely an ensemble piece, even with Don Draper at the center of it. So I ran first team on season two, and uh, I'll just tell a little story that John Hamm told me uh, one night when we were hanging out at base camp. He said that he was on this movie called We Were Soldiers, and he was one of the soldiers that was like always in, on in the movie with uh, Mel Gibson. He was part of Mel Gibson's team. And he said, I don't know, there were like 10 or 15 of them. And they didn't really have lines. They were like featured extras, but they were, they were part of the, the group of soldiers. And he said that um, Mel Gibson treated them so well and like they were part of the team. And he also said, you know, Mel Gibson was number one. Of course, he would show up on time he knew all his lines he was ready to go he was always there and he set the example for the rest of the the uh the cast and everybody followed his lead and that's what john said he he looked to mel and how he acted on his movie when he was put in this position on mad men and uh i'd say he pulled it off just the way he wanted to i mean john was always there knew his lines the cast on down i mean it was it was such a good group Nobody had big egos. Everybody loved each other, at least from my perspective. I mean, Lana was in the makeup trailer with them. Closed doors, she might mm-hmm. know differently. But I, 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 season two, I had a great time hanging out with everybody. We had a, we had a table at base camp. We, had, we put in fake grass. We played <laughs> cards, backgammon. I mean, it was, it was a really, really nice family. And I think also what might have lended itself was the fact that everybody was kind of a relatively unknown and came up together on the show and, and everybody kind of found success together, which is always a good thing. They were so prepared, the regular cast, that if a day player came in and didn't know their lines and started forgetting their lines, they would, they would literally look to that person and go, really? That was their... <laughs> That was their line to them. Either Vincent would do it or John Hamm would do it, Vincent Carthizer or John Hamm or John Slattery. They would look at him and go, really? Um, and we would, you know, as a second AD and Eric too, we would express that to everybody when we met them. Like, hey, just so you know, everyone knows their lines here. So that to make sure that people came in, because there was one or two sometimes that that didn't. And it was quite painful and I would feel sorry for them because the the regular cast were were not um they were vicious and rightfully so <laughs> <laughs> and and there was no there was no uh improvising either on set you had to know your lines word for word line for line you said what was on the paper yes and uh the you didn't change anything you know also sometimes there was a couple actors that were recast after a table read, you know, Matt just, he knew what he wanted. And if the person wasn't going to deliver it, we, he lived, they paid them off and hired somebody else. Now, what about in later seasons when you start bringing in actors with resumes, think of Harry Hamlin, for example, how do they fit into a, a, a cast that is so integrated, become a part of that? Everyone read for Matt. Everybody. It didn't matter who you were. And some actors that didn't want to read, he didn't cast them. So even who played Megan's mom? Um, 
Oh, Julia Ormond. Yeah, Julia Ormond. She auditioned as well. Everyone read for him. Um, and that's how Matt knew they would, they would fit into the show. Personality-wise, not everybody fit in. There was one character who I'm not going to mention, so we don't get any names, but Eric knows who this person is, and you do too. <laughs> and he looked at me after the read-through, and he said, because on the read-throughs, the first ADs would read the stage directions, which were also like the most stress most anxiety i've ever had on that show because if you, you mispronounce something or didn't do something matt was literally right there and i could feel his eyes burning into me and i would literally sweat but he turned to me and said i apologize and i said what are you what are you sorry for he said if sometimes if you want an, a character to be annoying you have to hire an annoying actor and he was dead right about this person <laughs> And Eric all, I'm gonna, about. all I'm going to say is it was like we had to back up the water truck to the stage. They drank so much water. I, I, I've never seen anything like it. It was constantly water, 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 please, water, please. The, oh. the PAs ended up putting like a case of water by her chair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was not a, re it's not a series regular. Not a series regular. What about in the makeup trailer? How did they fit? Listen, like I said, you know, at the beginning we had like a little table and grass outside. By the by, season seven we had like a two-story deck with a fire pit, <laughs> like a game table, because like we would we would we would hang out there so much that people that weren't even shooting would come and hang out at base camp. Like it was like Friday night. We'd sometimes see the sun come up. We would wrap at midnight, but we would stay there to like, and we would like hang out on the weekends. Like we were like, you know, we spent a lot of time together, and you know, I think it's like. I don't think anybody intentionally ever wanted to be rude or like elitist, but it's like a thing where it's like when you're like a, such a tight group and you're, you have a rhythm and then it's like somebody new comes in, it's almost just like kind of you can't sit with us. Not because, you know, <laughs> it just is like you're the new kid, you know, it's just how it works. But like, you know, then there's some people like, like when Jay Ferguson came in, like he just like had no concept of like, you're not welcome here. So he just would like pull up a chair and be like, I brought dominoes. We're going to play this game. And we were just like, hey, buddy. But then, of course, like he became like the mascot, you know? So like people like that just sort of moved in and like took over. And then, you know, but there wasn't any like fighting or drama, really. It just was like, we were all super tight, like us, the hair department and the cast and like these guys. And we spent a lot of time together. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of people have told me I've gone on to work with some, uh, you know, other actors that weren't, you know, that were on the show, but not often, like maybe three episodes a season. They were like, it felt like the most unfriendly place I ever, you know, I, I was scared to like walk around that corner where the base camp was because everybody was having a good time. But if you would sit there, you were made to feel super uncomfortable, which is, it was never like anyone's intention. It's just, you know, we spent like 18 hours a day together, it's you know, it's like, it's more of like, because I've spent many nights there. <laughs> if you're going to come around that corner and sit down, have something to say. Get involved. Right. You couldn't just come and sit there and not say anything because that's what would make you feel uncomfortable. And if you had something to say, you know, you're in, you were in like with people that have been together for so many hours for a week for so many years and like like we said we would like we would only shoot five months but we literally still hung out all the time and kind of still do i mean we still all see each other a lot and like holidays birthdays like we're always all together 
So, you know, it was just a tough crowd, but like not, not in like a, a nasty way, just in like a, you know, you get, you better get it. It's like a big family. You know, if you're the quiet one, you're just going to be left behind. You got to like be loud and get in there or else you're ignored. I equated it to like the double jumping rope, how you, you have to jump in there and start going or else you, you, you know, the ropes, you get caught. So it was sort of like that. And some of the day players that even some of them that only came for a little bit, they made it in, they would fit right in and have a great time. And some of them just, you know, stayed in a corner and read, read something, read a book. Or drank a, or drank a lot of water. Right. And, you know, if you go to LA Center right now where our base camp was, I can't believe they, we actually built this deck and they tore it down. But on the last day, oh, yeah. we carved our names into our initials into a tree. Uh-huh. And that is still there. Yeah, it's still there. I just went, because I, we, I, I also work on Glow and we shoot it there. So I would go sip, see the tree with all our initials on it. Pretty cool. It was really, um, you know, Matt, you know, some people that would come in and out for an episode crew-wise would say, you all have Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> but, you know, we fell in love with our captor. But it was more of a family. They always really called us collaborators. And that's what I loved about that show. It was the first show that, as a first AD that I had direct access to this showrunner who would tell me, you make sure this and make sure that and, you know, make sure this director does this. We, we were collaborators, you know. I, I'll never forget season two or one or two were sitting in a room, you know, and we're 100,000 over. You know, what could we do about it? And it wasn't like to shame people into bringing their budget down. It's like, what could we do? And my one contribution was in where, where Don's brother, Adam, hangs himself. Before he hangs himself, he mails a letter. And in the script, he goes to the post office. And where we were going to shoot it is, basic, is actually the same location we shot the Jaguar dealership. But we were going to turn that into a post office. And it was going to cost tens of thousands of dollars to do it. And we shot his hotel room in the Barclay Hotel downtown before the makeover that it got. It was really a seedy, seedy place. And my suggestion was, I remember my grandma telling me stories that hotels used to basically be post offices. And you can go in there and mail letters and stuff like that. And, um, you, know, Dan, you know, Dan Bishop said, yeah, that's correct. And I said, isn't the lobby of the Barclay period correct? And Dan said, yeah. And we pitched that idea to Matt. Could he just go downstairs and give the letter to the hotel clerk? And, and that stayed in and that cut out a location and dressing and a move and all of that stuff. And that's sort of the way we operated on that show. He challenged us too. He's like, do your research, prove me wrong. And there were some occasions where he was proven wrong by the prop department, by hair and makeup. Um, for us as background, like when... Betty went to go looking for the violin. She went to St. Mark Street. I Googled St. Mark's with the date. Pictures came up. And I remember I saw like two nurses walking by, a guy holding a TV. And I would show these pictures and be like, this is what I was thinking for the background for that. He'd be like, I love it. And that's literally what we did. Do you remember when it was snowing and the guy walking with the TV and we had the two nurse cross? You were the second second. Yeah, I'll never forget the guy with the TV. He loved carrying that thing back and forth. 
<laughs> is there a special bump for carrying TV that you give somebody on their uh, on their voucher? Only no. if he brought it himself. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, talking about uh, how these sort of conditions create um, what I think you'd argue is pretty insor crew and cast working together. Talk to me a little bit about things that were going on outside the show, starting with, as you mentioned, the show gets more and more popular. Product placement, I've read some stuff about a couple of key things, and like I said, Heineken was in season two, was a big part, and Unilever in one of the later seasons. I've also read that Matt wasn't really happy with all of that went, but I'm curious about how that might have affected things on set, if at any point, either things coming in or the sense of what was going on outside the show. Heineken was the only thing they made a deal with, and they paid for our rap party season two. And Matt hated the whole experience of having a advertiser have a say in what you're doing because they're paying a lot of money. So of course they're going to have a say. And that was the last time he did that. Every product we used, Jaguar, Coca-Cola, they had no idea we were doing it. And no one got sued. It's amazing. <laughs> Every other show you go on, they talk about clearance and all of that stuff. But on that show, no, he didn't deal. He did not tell anybody anything because he did not want them to have a say. So the only product that I know of was Heineken for season two. And that was it. And what about in general, the sense as there was a public discussion about the show and that there's a controversy that while we're highlighting the social challenges of the 60s and the racism, the sexism, and the homophobia, the show is also in some level, perhaps glamorizing some of the bad behavior, the drinking and the womanizing. Again, as later seasons go on, some of these behaviors start to catch up with some of the cast, but certainly there was a huge public debate around the time about what the show is trying to do. And I'm curious, again, whether you feel that or you can ignore all that when you're on a show this tight. I, I, think, you, I would think you can ignore it because the show was so successful and everybody was so proud of what they were doing. I don't think any of it was glamorized. I think it, it is what it is. And the only way you learn from bad behavior is to see people doing it. So to try to rewrite history like some shows do, that they don't let cigarettes on a show because it promotes bad behavior. But if you watch Mad Men, you see what these cigarettes did to these people and what it did to their faces and Betty got cancer. And I don't think we glamorize anything. I think we've shined a spotlight on all of that stuff. It was also one of the reasons why the show was popular, though, too. If you talk to anybody out there, it's like, I love all this smoking and drinking at work. I mean, it was people love to see it, you know, but you're right. We didn't glamorize it. I think the audience, the audiences took to it because they're not used to seeing that. On it was also, and also people that like were, you know, were working in that time were like, yeah, that's what it was. Right. Like, it wasn't like we made that up. And people were more like, I can't believe we behave that way. <laughs> you know, the, the occasion to walk into somebody, you know, you would just walk into somebody's office to have a drink. There was no occasion, yeah. you know, and that's why that's every time John went to, you know, Don went to um, Roger's office or Roger went to Don's, the first place they go is to the bar. What about the smoking at the, in the doctor's office? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now the cast, the real, the, the, the real smokers would smoke those fake cigarettes all day long. And then you say, check the gate and they'd go outside and smoke a real one. <laughs> <laughs> obviously on set, you're not using real cigarettes, using the herbals that, uh, uh, don't, so no one else is uh, suffering the secondhand smoke on set. 
Well, they no. almost smell worse. Yeah. <laughs> but they also, if you, all the air conditioning vents in, or in the sets all had box fans on them. And when we cut and they turned the lights off, the sound guy had a switch to take all the smoke and blow it out. Otherwise, we would have all turned green. <laughs> and there were some smokers who, when they couldn't leave the set, would that were crew members, they would smoke a fake cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to spend a little bit more time talking about that final season. So the final season comes in two parts. There's seven episodes that are the first part and then a second seven, but it's released a year apart. Did you film them as two separate seasons or did you film all 14 of those episodes in a row and just we're talking about release dates that had them so far apart we took two it was like eight weeks right between i think six weeks six weeks off in between the first block and second block but we filmed it as one big season and think about that a year went by and nobody there was no nothing released from that last season because every production meeting and every concept meeting and every read through Matt beat into our head the value of the show is no, no one knowing what's going on. And he told every actor, don't put it on your IMDb page. Don't, we will promote you once the show airs. The value in this is keeping it secret. And it got a little, you know, you bring up the point, like what happened when it got more popular? When it got more popular, it, the secrecy started more. We started having paparazzi meetings because now for the first time in season five, we started getting paparazzi. That didn't happen to us because nobody cared about the show. So now we have to have these meetings because Matt didn't like seeing pictures of the guest stars in costume and then people tried to figure out what was going to go on. So we would have to like have them loaded up in a van with dark windows. And if they were going to walk to set, we, we had umbrellas and stuff like that. A few of them, like John Hamm, was like, I don't give an F. And yeah, but he know, like when we did Fat Betty, they were like climbing the walls at LA Center to photograph her. Right. And they got pictures of her fat, in her fat makeup before. The only thing that saved us was that she was pregnant. So they assumed, they, they just that assumed she was... was pregnant and not that we had made her, uh -huh. that we had made her fat. And the other thing too is that you know, our call sheets used to say Mad Men on them. And then season five, we switched to You Are Okay, which was the LLC. Because that was a line from the pilot when he, you know, he described um, advertising. You know, he basically said, you know, advertising wants to make people feel like they are okay. And they use that. Now, all of our call sheets said You Are Okay. All of our synopses could not say Don and Peggy talk about this we had to basically write something that didn't give away the story so I would just pull lines out from the script so whatever was the most memorable line of the scene I would put that as my synopsis the crew would be like confused <laughs> and then also when, at the end when we went to Big Sur we went there under like filming under a fake commercial. Like they even made us t-shirts right. for the, the fake commercial that we were filming. Like everybody was in like a fake, it was so ridiculous. Right, the people didn't know we were in Hawaii until we were there. And then the first day we started filming there, that's when everybody knew we were there because they kept it really, really secret. Adam, when, with the, on your call sheets when you did that with the synopsis, was that a directive yes. that you were told to do that? Not to pull the lines from the script. The directive was, 
there can't be any story in those synopses. You know, every writer likes to see their their words. <laughs> you know, if if a writer would direct an episode, it would be just lips moving. So my idea was I would pick lines from the script that were the most memorable. And Matt liked that. There was one episode that was about, I forgot what author. And I would, I, I somehow tied it into all of the synopses. And Matt saw that and commented on it. He's the only one that would get it. And that's why I did it. But it was also just a, a game for me to see like, hey, see if he's really paying attention. And he was. We would start every concept meeting with, here's what I didn't like about the background from the last episode. <laughs> and he would be talking to the ADs not responsible for it. Yeah. Because <laughs> the and other he, team is the ones who had said it, but you were planning for the next, for the next right. episode, the one at so the I'd be like, um, I'm going to, I'll let them know about that. <laughs> yeah. but, well, probably lesson learned on both sides. Talk more about the, that last season. You talked about going to Big Sur. You talked about Don Draper's road trip. This now things are getting a lot, a lot bigger. You have maybe fewer cast and you're stepping away from the offices, but that's all where you had very established scenes and processes, but all of this is new. Yeah. We had to find new locations we, you know, he went on a road trip across the country. So we started filming in these remote parts of California to find like the ho little hotel that he would stay at in 1960, which now is like a gimmicky place in California because it's, it's period correct. And, um, but it's far out there because LA is so overbuilt. And also when we, we, that fast food place, the real burger chef, we actually went to an old, a burger chef that was just sitting there empty and re created it. It was, we did some pretty crazy stuff. We did that same thing with Howard Johnson's as well. I, I we went a little inland uh, from LA, I think if I can remember correctly to find an old Howard Johnson's building to shoot our exteriors at, you know, you're not going to just go find some building and, and, you know, shoot a Howard Johnson's because it had such a unique, distinct look. We went to an actual old Howard Johnson's and, and found the one to shoot at, painted it all up nice and made it look like it was brand new. So guys, with this challenges of this last season, tell me also what it's like to start a season knowing that it's basically going to wrap up a show particularly one that you've been worked on this long with these group of folks, because correct me if I'm wrong, but you knew from the beginning that season seven was going to be the end. Yeah. Oh, from the beginning of the season. Yeah. Season. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was bittersweet, you know? Um, I mean, to be honest, in the beginning, I don't think any of us really thought about it because we had to make another season of this show. We know how hard it is. And so we sort of focused on that. But towards when we came back for the second half, it definitely was, you know, bittersweet. I don't know. I remember the first, re like, because, you know, we had so many, like he said, so many meetings and we all had to go. I remember the first concept meeting of season seven, like Matt and Scott both made a speech, like this is our last first premiere. And like everybody, was, there was not like, a everybody was crying. They were crying. We all were crying. It was like... You know, and we had a lot, every, everything started that way. Like, this is our last first day and our last gallery shoot and our last, you know, and it was like, we just kind of all, I mean, I know as far as like myself and the cast and we were just like, we're just going to have to tell our families that for the next, you know, 
seven months, like we're, they're never going to, because we're only going to be together. And we really were like, it was like, <laughs> I think we, I mean, I think it started off that way. Everybody, Oh, this is our last, this, our last, you know, our last, whatever. I don't know. Our last second episode, our last production meeting, I, it, you know, it, it could. <laughs> yeah. There was we, a lot of lasts. In. There was a lot of lasts. The, the one thing I remember from that season, the gift they gave us, which is something I cherish. They gave us a yearbook. And they broke up the crew as freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors. Those of you that, those of the crew that were there from episode one, not the pilot, but episode one, season one, were seniors. And then, but judging by how many years you were on the show, you were either you were then a, a junior, sophomore, or freshman. And we actually took photos. They did clubs like you do in a, in a yearbook, like the sound club and the catering club and every department took pictures together and they did um what do you call those things where you give out the awards the uh, yeah the, um, superlatives yeah. Uh-huh. i won loudest of course <laughs> two, two of the ad's won loudest and cutest couple with me and chris sposa the boom operator <laughs> very nice because we were inseparable because he was hilarious and we both we're frustrated by the same things. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was such a great, a great way to wrap up that show. I have this, they asked the entire crew to send pictures of, cause we all took pictures while we were shooting the show. And it really is just this, every once in a while, I leave it in my office now. And I love when people come in and look through it and I get to sit there and go through all those memories again. And also, like, it, they gave it to us, like, two like uh, two weeks before we wrapped so we could go around and get everyone to sign it. So, you like, sign. You lock it. Yeah, so everybody. <laughs> Perfect. It, it, there's some, I mean, it's some of, like, the sweet, it's the sweetest thing. Yeah. I think that, yeah, it's yeah. the best. But best, best gift ra- ever. That's a best gift. And then best actor gift was John Hamm gave to, I think, people that were there from season one, a bar of gold in a fancy wallet some name brand wallet that someone said, yeah, that's fancy. Um, (laughs) And a note that basically said to cherish, he cherishes this time and these memories as much as that bar of gold. And for us to do that, and this is to remind you to do that. And that to me was one of the sweetest things ever because it wasn't just a gift or a really expensive gift, to be honest, because gold has gone up since then. But... (laughs) It just the gift was that keeps like, giving. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, you know, he really wanted to tell us to remember these times. And as John Slattery said, this show will be on all of our epitaphs. Worked on Mad Men. Well, it sounds like quite an experience you had, guys. And I really appreciate you coming on the show today to, to, to share about it. Thanks so much for being here today. Appreciate You're welcome. It. Listeners, if you'd like to tell me what you thought of the episode, you can send an email to skid, S-K-I-D, at below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. I also appreciate your feedback via iTunes, where I review your ratings and comments, and Facebook, where I post photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. Please do rate us and tell your friends. It helps new listeners find the show. For updates and other info, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. On both platforms, search for Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our work. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Whether you're a longtime listener or just starting with us now, thanks for joining us today for the kickoff of Season 3. We'll drop another episode next week.
Adam, I want you to tell me a little bit about your background scene in the final episode. With all the pressure you've talked about, I'm putting on this show. I noticed it when I was watching earlier today. You walk out of a conference room. You know the scene I'm talking about? You know, Matt never liked that. There's only two instances in the show where crew names were there. And he, they, were, they were done without him really re- recognizing it. He didn't like it. Horn Barker and Sons was on a moving truck. And when you flash back to where Don was working at the gas station, it was Bishop's gas station, which was Dan Bishop, our production designer. But for the last episode, he got sort of, I don't know, sentimental. And any crew member that was there from the beginning, there was a few of us that he asked if we wanted to be extras in the show. And so in that scene, it was me and Semi Chellis, who was the writer of the previous episode, and she ran the room with Matt for season seven. We had just finished filming our episode, and he asked us both to be in the scene, and we did it. And I'll be honest with you, it was nerve-wracking because <laughs> it's imagine. hard. <laughs> I still haven't watched it because it was so nerve-wracking that I don't even want to see it. And all, all the other actors are just so good. But when you're standing there with the camera pointing at you, it was, it was, I, you know, it was, Matt had to come talk to me and relax me. And then I did what he wanted. But it was really nerve wracking. I have to be honest. Yeah, I don't even remember. You do a little bit where you push your glasses up right as you're stepping out. Were you directed on that or were you feeling no. creatively improvisational, as you would say? I did that because of his direction. You know, it was more, that was a F you to her, you know? And he told me to drop my shoulders to look defeated. Um, but it was hard. I have actually have a picture of us, John, of Peggy, Don, I would say Elizabeth, John, Matt, me and Semi, right after we shot that scene. Cause that was literally the last time I was on the set until the very last day when we have the entire crew came back and we have a picture where you can't see them on our faces because there's so many people. <laughs> but we're, um, that was the last time I came back. And we stayed, I think, till like, what, six in the morning and base camp. <laughs> that's I think that's when, they, when we carved the initials in the tree, too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All those uh, office bars, that's going to be the last time you needed any of them. So finish up what's ever there. there no alcohol went wasted on that set that's for sure every scott had a bar matt had a bar dan had a bar the coordinator john hampion had a bar there was wine and cheese fridays at the art department every friday there was i mean nobody was a drunk but we you know when it was when work was done everybody there was no it wasn't far to go to celebrate or especially after a hard episode or um, or a Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying not to say that. There's a lot of drinking on this show. 